I have to use the mic because they're recording, but I don't really need it. I am just honored and privileged to introduce Nancy Varian this morning. Not only do I know her for what she does at Malone, but she is a personal friend. And what she does at Malone is that she is the director of the Center for Professional Development in the School of Education and Human Development at Malone University, where she has worked for seven years. Her background is in education as she served as a classroom teacher for 17 years and an elementary principal for seven. She received her BS and MS from Mississippi State, a master's degree from Ashland, a PhD at the University of Akron, and a superintendent certificate from Kent State University. She seems to be well educated. Nancy feels that we need to learn more about our neighbors so we can work and live with them in harmony. She teaches classes and seminars on frameworks of understanding poverty, cultural diversity, and daring discussions on race, economic levels, and how children learn. She has visited over 30 countries. Mission work has taken her to China, Ecuador, oh, and on and on. She spent two and a half weeks in China in January and has just returned and she was teaching educational leadership at a Christian school for prospective teachers. She serves on boards or advisory committees at the Stark Community Foundation, Community Harvest, Heritage Christian, and the World Language Committee at Jackson High School. Nancy's a member of Mount Tabor United Methodist Church in East Canton. She lives with her husband Reed on their family apple orchard in East Canton. Their two sons are married and live in the area her oldest son teaches kindergarten at Plain Local, and younger son, Scott, is the manager of the Chick-fil-A at the mall. They have a two-year-old grandson. Thanks, Patty. Thank you. I've got, I've got another mic. Can you hear me okay? i turn this one off, I think. Okay, there. Good morning. It's nice to be here. Uh, this is something, this topic is something that really, really interests me, and I want to just give you a little bit of background, and then I want to get to know very quickly who you are, but um, just a little bit of background of why my interest in poverty. Um, as Betty mentioned in the introduction, I grew up in Mississippi and was educated there. My dad was a professor at Mississippi State, and I felt that I had a really good, um, a really good education to prepare me to be a teacher. But my first teaching job, I graduated in the middle of the year and couldn't find a job. And uh, when I was able to get a job, it happened to be in a city about 30 miles away, and it was in a very high crime, low income area. And it was pretty severe culture shock for me. I all of a sudden was thrown into a situation where every one of my children were on free lunch. Uh, very few of them had any real family identity. They, most of them lived in a home with lots of other children, a mom and some aunts. Very few had fathers. I had a couple, couple of them that knew their fathers were in prison. So it was really quite um, a shock for me because I wasn't prepared uh, for that group of children. And I learned very quickly that even though my education had prepared me for understanding how children learn, I didn't understand all the cultural things that uh, made them who they were. So I learned very quickly that I really had to change what I was, was thinking about teaching. Um, and I taught there in the South for two or three years, and then I had the opportunity through the 4-H program to be an exchange student in Sri Lanka, which is south of India. And I lived there for nine months with, uh, six months with nine families. And again, a, a different kind of poverty. Uh, in that country, uh, everyone uh, pretty much has the same situation, particularly in the rural areas. None of my families had running water. Uh, none of them had electricity. And so after those two experiences, I was really very interested in finding out just what can I do as an educator to help people of poverty and to help children of poverty be successful. So taking my experiences in Mississippi and then taking my experiences overseas, I really wanted to, to try to, to grasp some things that I could use um, to really help the populations that I felt that I would be working with. And uh, for a while, I just had to kind of do it on my own. But I found some really wonderful materials probably about 15 years ago. Uh, and you'll notice up there it says um, Framework for Understanding Poverty by Dr. Ruby Payne. Uh, Dr. Payne uh, wrote some of the first materials that were written for, specifically for teachers. It's grown, and I'll tell you more about that later. But um, 
she really felt that teachers needed to understand the culture that children of poverty come with so that they could really make a difference for them in being successful in school. And when I, I went to a couple of her um, presentations, and I can remember sitting in the audience, I felt like I was just nodding the whole time. I thought, oh, I understand, I understand. And a couple, a couple quick examples. Um, as a young teacher, I would go and visit some of my students' families, particularly when they wouldn't come to school. I would go and get you know, s signatures. And I can remember thinking to myself, well, this is really odd. They live in a trailer, they live in a very small home, yet they have a large screen TV, or they have a satellite dish, or they have a fancy car. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. Where are their priorities? As a young teacher, I couldn't afford those things. But after I started reading Ruby's work, I realized very quickly that there were some very um, sound reasons behind that. For one thing, if you live in poverty, you know, you're living in a survival mode. Day after day, you're having to deal with, uh, am I going to make ends meet? Do I have enough food to put on the table? Do I have shoes for my children? And so there is this real need for that entertainment element to be able to escape, to be able to watch something on a large screen TV or drive around town, even if you don't own the car. So people think that you have, uh, have a nice new car. So all of a sudden, I realized there are some real differences. And so I was really intrigued, and I wanted to learn so much more. And so that's what really got me started. It was kind of a catalyst for me. So as we start to talk, I really I want to know a little bit about you. And I know we don't have a lot of time. So if we could just go real quickly right around. And what I'd like you to do is just share one thing about yourself. Uh, and maybe you may know each other pretty well. But, uh, and if you do, pick one of the things that maybe the others in the room don't know. Either your occupation, where you grew up, something about your family that might be of interest, uh, maybe your new, new Year's resolution and whether you've kept it or uh, not, uh, or something that probably nobody in the room knows about you except maybe your spouse. So just take a second to think. <laughs> just take a minute to think of something that you can give us your name and just share one of those things with us just quickly so I can kind of get a feel for, for your group. Okay. Uh, Wendy Gray. Good, you'll be able to share with us. I have six children, eight grandchildren. Great. Redefining myself at the moment. Oh, good. Okay. Betty. Betty Meyer. Um, what? Okay, great. Rachel. Uh, Rachel Schaefer. Wow, congratulations. Can you top that? Yes, <laughs> Okay, I'm Bob Shaker, and I'm the other half of this. I'm a retired newspaper person and, and an accountant, kind of. Great, great. Okay, great. You're going to have lots to share with us, too. Great. Fred Bowes, retired attorney. Paul Batchelder, retired uh, electric. Thanks. Natalie White. Oh, okay. Great. shocked <laughs> that you would share that. <laughs> I'm Pam Moretta, and he really doesn't snore that loud. It's false. <laughs> I'm a physical therapist and a hand therapist. Great. Okay, thank you. We'll start over here and go around. I was born in a three-foot snowstorm, and the OBGYN came in on, on the plow. Oh, Wow. <laughs> I'm Chris Pekarski, and I just started substitute, well, I substitute teach, but this is my first year doing it in the urban setting. My eyes have been opened. Ah, uh -huh. okay. 
My name is Joan Green. I am a reference librarian in the inner city Stark County District Library where the culture of poverty is definitely arriving. Right. Um, I think one thing most people don't know about me is most of my teeth were made by the dentist. Oh. <laughs> I'm John Reinhardt and I grew up in Fairmont, West Virginia. I'm Rafael Rodriguez. I, uh, I was born in Puerto Rico. I grew up in New York, and then I spent 20 years in the Army, so I, I've been around a little bit. Oh, you have. <laughs> I'm Nancy Montgomery, and I'm a retired teacher. And the, my husband's not in the room, but the, he's probably the only one in here who would know that I was a bartender when I got out of college. Uh, Nancy. <laughs> see you, Nancy. <laughs> Um, I'm Bonnie, and I'm a school teacher at a dropout recovery program. Um, and my New Year's resolution was to read more, and I made it because I thought it might be the only one I would keep. Hey, good for you. <laughs> That's how I'm, to be successful. Pick one you're going to keep. My name's Roger Gray, husband of Pastor Wendy over there in the corner. And uh, uh, something about television. I was uh, raid, born, and raid, born and reared in uh, Janaden Hutton, uh, 40 miles south of here. And my dad used to say TV was the ruination of America until I found out we had the second TV in the town in 1948. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so. Oh, thanks. Uh, Randy Snow, and I uh, grew up in Worcester, Ohio, and tomorrow my mother will be 95 years old, oh, so I'll be wonderful. visiting her this afternoon. Great. He's also a pretty good lawyer. Uh, I'm, I'm a retired physician, Gerald Smith. Uh, something you might, uh, it really tickled me when you said the first thing they get is a TV. When Joanne and I went to Washington, D.C., we all of our stuff we had in Cleveland was just trashed. So the first thing we bought was a TV. <laughs> so we sat on the floor and watched the TV until we could collect the other things. Uh, I. Uh, <laughs> that was poverty to, to us. I grew up as a school teacher's son, uh, coach son, and uh, I, uh, you know, I was perfectly happy because I had all every kind of ball and bat there was, football, and uh, I had uh, a bicycle, and when I had all those things, I I didn't need anything more. And but my mom was always harping about how we didn't have anything, and so she was worried about how would we. Uh, pay for college and all that kind of thing. So it took me, I, I, don't, I was probably 50 years old before I got over that, was not worried about finances. Thank you. I'm Joanne Smith. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, <laughs> what a lot of people probably don't know about me is that I was a counselor at Child and Adolescent Service Center oh. in Canton for right. almost 10 years. Okay, good. You'll have some things to share with us, I'm sure. Sue Campbell, has been English teacher, daughter of teachers, grew up in Boardman. Great, thanks. Dick Campbell, uh, retired CPA. Jim Kittlewell, I'm a retired baker. Uh, <laughs> about 40 some years ago, I got a tattoo on my ankle, <laughs> and it's a picture of a pig. <laughs> <laughs> we want proof. <laughs> Kent Berg, I'm a uh, semi-retired dentist and uh, spent my first three years in Kedron, Ohio because my dad was in the service and then uh, grew up in Dalton. Okay, thank you. Greg Shorsten. Uh, uh, went, grew up here in Canton, Ohio, went to Lehman High School, like a few of us in the room. Been a member of the church all my life. And uh, I, I don't remember the bar Nancy was a bartender at. Oh. <laughs> so I want to know if I ever came in and had a cocktail. I probably did. <laughs> I'm Kim Kemper. I'm from Washington, Pennsylvania. I was the first person in my family to leave home and go to college, and I'm a podiatrist. Yvonne Williamson, I am an adjunct writing instructor right now at the University of Akron and Altman College of Nursing. So. Right. Michael Lee, and I round out all of this by saying I'm a truck driver. 
Okay, great. Did everybody have a chance to share? I think Don came in after. He can't sneak in and not uh, say something. I'm Don Montgomery, uh, retired from education after 48 years and grew up in Stark County. And something unusual? I don't know. I could just come from a crazy family. That's You're married all. to someone who was a bartender. Yeah, yeah. I was a bartender. <laughs> and she knows how to make good drinks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Can I? Uh, yes, oh, please. I, I'm Rich Milligan, and I, um, I'm thinking about this. It, 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 I, I don't know if this is relevant, but I live within two blocks of the home where I was brought as a baby ah. in Canton on 19th Street. So basically lived in the city of Canton all my uh -oh. life. You've seen a lot of changes, I'm sure, through the years. Yes. That's yes. great. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing. And we have a lot of educators and a lot of people that have had opportunities to work with uh, inner city and, and people living in poverty. So please feel free to chime in when you have things to share. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of what I uh, have to share is really based on the work of Ruby Payne. And uh, her book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, was written specifically for educators to help students. And um, after the success of this through the years, she realized that it's not just the education system, but the whole community that needs to embrace um, the opportunity to help those in need. And Bridges Out of Poverty was um, a book that, or, I'm sorry, uh, Bridges, Out, yeah, Bridges Out of Poverty uh, for Communities. And she's written many other books for businesses and for healthcare and for many other areas. So it's a wonderful resource. And Eric Jensen is also someone who has done quite a bit with um, poverty. And he talks about teaching uh, for poverty as it relates to the mind and the brain and how we develop. And it's got some really interesting things also. Um, just as um, Betty mentioned, I just came back from China a couple weeks ago. And I spent two and a half weeks there. And you know, I was so amazed at, uh, as you know, um, China is a communist country. And only recently have they allowed Christians to actually um, be able to um, not only worship together, but uh, there's, there's still a, a lot of limited uh, opportunities. And we worked in a Christian school, and I was just really overcome by the dedication of those young people who want to be teachers, but they just don't want to be teachers. They want to be Christian teachers. And uh, it made me realize the freedoms and the opportunities we have. Uh, and even when, we, when we, I did an educational leadership class with them, and our dean from Malone did an educational theories class, and we were even supposed to be very careful with sharing scripture. And so I was reminded when I was putting this together how fortunate we are that we have the freedoms, the religious freedoms in our country. But as I know you know, uh, the Bible is full of many scriptures about helping those uh, in need and helping people of poverty. And these were just a couple that, that I pulled out that I thought kind of spoke to me and how important it is for us to, uh, to help those in need. And there's many different ways that we can do that on many different levels. Um, this is a little bit dated now, but um, this was in the USA Today in uh, the end of 2011. And actually, after this came out, there was an, another um, a little correction that the poverty was 15-point high, highest since 1993. It was actually um, tied for 93, so it was actually um, even, even a, a longer period. And we know, reading and seeing what's going on, uh, poverty with the economy and with so many people that had lived above the poverty line have fallen under it because of all uh, the loss of jobs and a lot of the things that have gone on. Uh, I was shocked when this came out a couple years ago. The repository said family poverty in Canton, worst among Ohio's biggest cities. That was shocking to me when, you know, I think of Youngstown and I think of Cleveland and, and Toledo and a lot of other cities, and I thought that's really surprising that sometimes we don't even realize in our own backyard the, the need that we have here in our community. Right, right, in Ohio. What do you think of when you think of poverty? What comes to mind? What do you think of? Lack of employment. What else? Uneducated. Uneducated. What else? Homeless. Homeless. Hungry. 
Smoker. Stress. Okay. They've got they've gotten themselves in that situation. Okay. Others. Okay. Can't afford can't afford uh, medical care, dental care. Yes. Right. 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 Good point. Hopelessness. And you bring up a good point is what, what poverty can lead to. You know, what, what causes, uh, what things happen because of a poverty situation. So what I want you to do is brainstorm about what poverty can lead to. Those things that you mentioned, if those things are not corrected, what kind of things can happen in the lives of people? And we're, gonna, we're going to kind of narrow it down by thinking of things only that start with the letter D. I think you'll be surprised at how many we can come up with. So things that, because of poverty, can lead to what? Starting with a D. Despair. Depression. Disease. Death. Desperate. Divorce. Oh, you guys are good. What? Dreams. Dreams. Deteriorate. Drinking. What kind of goes along with drinking, maybe? Drugs. Excuse me? Delinquency. Disregard. Oh, you guys are good. Any others before I show you my list? You've named many of them. Death, disease, depression, divorce, drugs, drinking, disillusionment, deployment, disaster, downsizing, disability, dementia, diapers, more kids, domestic violence, dumb decisions, discouragement, disappointment, dehired. We had to throw that in because it wasn't a D. But uh, there's many, many things that we know uh, not only affects the people going through it, but our whole society. Well, sometimes uh, people that, that don't really have any, they can't find employment, they sometimes join the armed services to have, okay? And again, a little play on words to get the D in there. Right. And who are most likely to live in poverty? Children, sometimes those that don't really have a voice, immigrants, uh, female-headed households, disabled people, minorities, those probably don't surprise you. Uh, I think this is really interesting because when we think about survival and poverty, uh, one must rely on nonverbal, sensory, and reactive skills. When you think about having to live in a survival mode. But to survive in business and in the school setting, you must have verbal, abstract, and proactive skills. And even though the next four weeks we're not going to spend too much time talking about the educational part of dealing with children of poverty. However, um, one of the things that is very hard for teachers when they're dealing with children of living in poverty is that they some, can sometimes understand very concrete ideas, but it's very difficult for them to understand an abstract idea, which we do a lot of in school. And, um, and that's kind of another session, but I'll hit on it a little bit probably the fourth week. But that's something that we in education really have to deal with, is trying to help so many children that live in homes of poverty have a very chaotic background. You know, they don't necessarily have the same time they get up or they go to bed or they don't uh, maybe eat regularly, maybe they eat in front of the television. You know, they have a very chaotic, unstructured kind of uh, environment at home. So when they come to school, it's very difficult for them to all of a sudden be regimented and structured with bell systems and responsibility and having to have things turned in at a certain time. So there's such a disconnect that that's one of the reasons we understand how children of poverty uh, really do come from um, a reactive skill and nonverbal and having, having this need to um, only see things um, you know, concretely. They don't see the abstract. So uh, we'll talk more about this. Yes? Nancy, uh, with respect to poverty, are you finding it at a certain level? 
Good question. Uh, it, did everyone hear what Randy asked? If, if what, you know, what we're defining it as, and I think that, that the answer to that is really, as we go through here, you'll see that it's gonna be on very many different levels, whether it's economic, whether it's uh, maybe neglect, uh, and, and again, some people that, that might be you know, economically living in poverty, they might have resources that really lift them out of poverty because of support and because of faith and because of other things. So we're going to address that as we go through, but that's a great question. Some of the points that Ruby talks about, which I think are really important to think about, the first one is poverty is relative. Anybody want to take a stab at what they think that means? Poverty is relative. Yes? Good, right, very good. To time, and what about place? It's also relative to place. Exactly. I think a lot of people discover that when they do things in the mission field, they realize that our poor seems to, to have much more than some of the real severe poverty in other countries. And, and, and so forth. They were surviving off the land. So they, they measured their, their poverty by how much production the guy next door did. So if the guy was able to get a larger crop, he was a little better off than they were. Where we were looking at stuff that we have to bring in from, from an outside resource. Uh, so yes, right, it is very right, relative. Right, very good. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I, I mentioned my story about growing up in Mississippi and having all, all of my children being on free lunch. And I can remember they happened to live across the railroad tracks in a very, very poor area, but they could see the beautiful antebellum homes right across. I mean, they knew they lived in poverty. Yet when I was in Sri Lanka, those, because they had no electricity, no running water, at night we would take our torches and go out in the rice paddy, and they would sing and they would dance. And, you know, I thought, what joy they have, you know, that they didn't thought of themselves as poor. So it was very relative. And I remember when I first got to Sri Lanka, I realized very quickly I had taken with me, it was the first time I'd ever been out of the country, been away from home. And uh, so I went through a little bit of culture shock there too, but I had a, a little photo album of pictures of my family and my home and one for me to, you know, just to have it for myself, but I was planning to share it with my families. And I realized very quickly that it wouldn't be really appropriate. My family lived in a, you know, just a, a, a ranch-style home, but we lived in the country. And so my dad and my mom, who both worked, and my sister and brother and I all worked, we had five cars because we all went different directions. Well, I was in villages that had no cars, and I thought, I can't show them these pictures because they wouldn't understand. They would think that we were very wealthy. But in our standards, you know, we were, you know, middle class. Um, so you, you start thinking about, you know, if we took, if you took your wealth and you liquidated it and you moved to Manhattan, would you be, uh, would you be able to manage? I see some head shaking, no. But if you took that same wealth and you moved to maybe a suburb of Mexico, would you thought it be thought of as, as wealthy? Yes. You know, it is relative and it's something to keep in mind as we talk. Poverty occurs in all races and ethnicities. Uh, I think that's something, too, that's always been a little bit of a misconception. You know, I think sometimes we say African-Americans are poor and whites are middle class. That is not necessarily true. There are many, many more African-Americans who are uh, middle class, upper middle class. Uh, when you think about some of the poorest people in our country, think about the Appalachian area, Kentucky and Tennessee. I don't know if any of you, it's been several years ago, Diane Sawyer's had a... Uh, uh, she was from Kentucky, and she had this 2020 on uh, the poverty there, and it was shocking, uh, the, the drug abuse and the, um, the, the dental, talking about dental, you know, the, the cavities from the children drinking Mountain Dew as their regular, you know, beverage. And it was shocking to think that we have that kind of severe poverty so close to us. Uh, so we, we just need to keep in mind that, and, and we know as... Um, as the economy has really been rough for us, um, a lot of people in the middle class who have never had to deal with job loss 
or never had to deal with, with uh, things that have made them uh, have to go seek help. You know, we're not used, if we're independent and we, we have a difficulty asking for help, and many people have, in the first time in their lives, had to ask for assistance. So we just want to keep that in mind. What about generational and situational poverty are different? What do you think about that? Anybody want to share their opinion? Well, first of all, you know, generational poverty, you know, we can think about it, or generational socioeconomic um, Sometimes, my, my children in Mississippi, I can remember, it was just a part of their culture that at the first of the month when they got their welfare checks, I would drive to school and I'd see this line of people waiting to, to get their money. And my children had a mentality that they expected things to be given to them. That was the way that they had grown up. That was the way their parents and their grandparents had, had grown up. Uh, and, and I think even with wealth, with, with you know, Wealth that people, uh, young people sometimes feel entitled. You know, when they're 10 16, they get to pick any car they want. And so there's a certain kind of, um, of generational, um, sometimes uh, uh, entitlement, you know, sometimes uh, uh, thinking about it in that, in that way. And then what about situational poverty? What, what would you say would, would be an example of situational poverty? Job loss. Job loss. We just mentioned, you know, having, having to uh, all of a sudden ask for help when you never had to before. Um, it used to be in our country when, when usually the, the husband worked and the mom stayed home and raised the children. A lot of times it, it was um, situational poverty occurred when there was a divorce. Uh, sometimes the, the man would move on and the woman would be left in a situation where maybe she wasn't educated or didn't have a job or had the responsibility of raising her children. And uh, all of a sudden she found herself living in poverty and having to, to, um, to look to the, the community for help. Other types of situational poverty, um, a, a catastrophic illness, you know, something that you weren't counting on, uh, that, you know, sure, you might have insurance, but at some point, if it's catastrophic, that insurance isn't going to, you know, cover it completely. Uh, something that's happened in our country, in our world, over the last number of years has been the, the catastrophic um, natural disasters we've had. Um, back in 2004 when the tsunami hit, of course, because I love Sri Lanka so much, I was so moved by the fact that when the tsunami hit in the Indian Ocean, Sri Lanka and Thailand and Indonesia were hit very hard. Um, I had the opportunity, 30 years after being an exchange student to Sri Lanka, to go back and help find schools that were damaged and destroyed that we were able to, to help them uh, financially to get back on their feet. But um, what an example of a situational poverty. Uh, right after the tsunami, just months later, Katrina hit. And I mentioned I grew up in Mississippi. So I felt called to go and help there. And uh, actually, I, I went with 450 students from Kent State and University of Akron um, and 64 students from um, Malone in two different trips to go down to New Orleans and to the Mississippi coast to help gut houses and help people rebuild. And uh, I can remember, I remember in one situation, uh, a college friend of mine's parents lived... Um, right on the Mississippi coast, and I was dropping, I had a, I dr driven down my car with all kinds of household supplies, and I was dropping them off at, at their home, and they wanted me to come in, and I saw some cars in the driveway, and I said, oh no, if you have company, I don't want to come in. They said, oh no, you have to come in. Well, there were four women there that all of them happened to have, their husbands had been professionals, doctors and, and attorneys, who lived right in, on the Mississippi coast in these beautiful homes. And uh, these ladies were widows, and all of them lost everything. Their homes were completely gone, and the insurance was giving them nothing. And I, you know, I couldn't believe, I mean, they were women of faith, and they said, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. You know, we can live with our children. You know, we, we feel bad for these young people in their late 20s, early 30s that are just starting their lives. And the hurricane took their home, and they still owe the bank for 30 years on, you know, on a mortgage. And, you know, that really hit me. I thought, how devastating uh, a situational poverty event can be. It can change your life for, the, you know, for your entire future. Yes? Um, for back in, I think it was 95, um, I, was, I was a military chaplain, and um, the VA had sponsored a, the VA had sponsored a um, homeless vet for, uh, event for homeless veterans, providing all kinds of services. And it... It is what changed my eyes about situational poverty. Um, I went and I just sat down with uh, a young veteran who was homeless, and uh, we started talking. And it was this whole thing of 
He was an engineer, had a great degree, and, but he lost his job, and his wife left him, and the divorce, and the next thing you know, he was on the, all he had was his car, slept in his car, and that just, you know, but by the grace of God, I mean, exactly. I can think of the situations in my life that could have changed differently for me, right. and um, so it just, I want to share that. Right, right, thank you, thank you. Well, and I can remember that reminds me of when I was working down on the Mississippi coast, there was this, I can't think of the name of it right now, but it was a huge, like, circus tent where they were feeding everybody. They were feeding the, the people that had lost their homes. They were feeding um, church people from all over the country that were coming down and doing mission work. They, even convicts who were brought out of the prisons to help clean up debris. And I can remember serving those people thinking, here was a woman that obviously was a woman of great wealth who had lost everything next to a convict next to a, 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 you know, a teenager from a church in Illinois. And I thought, wow, you know, everyone coming together, but having to deal with this, this situational poverty that any of us could uh, end up in. Uh, schools operate from middle class norms and values, and I'm just going to touch on this because um, we'll talk a little bit later in another week about uh, the schools. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about this, uh, being in education for many, many years, I realized that we have these expectations. You know, as a school body, we expect our students to be on time. We expect them to have done their work. We expect that their parents uh, worked with them on their homework. We expect that they had a good, healthy breakfast. We expect that they slept eight hours a day, we, eight hours a night. We know that doesn't happen. But yet, that's the way our schools are set up. And so we don't always, um, we don't always have what those students need, and we don't always understand and take empathy on the kids that are going to need that extra. And I think one of the areas that we'll talk about later, too, is this huge technology gap. You know, those that have and those that don't have. And, you know, we see kids today with everything in their life is, is a gadget. And then those that don't have, that don't have a computer in their home, they don't have an, a, an iPhone, and yet they're expected to do those things in school that those kids that have. So we'll talk more about that later. Uh, the next one, individuals bring with them the hidden rules of class in which they are raised. And now I'm going to give you a little quiz and see how... Um, if you want to, let's see, I actually, what's that? You're still a I'm still a teacher. <laughs> what I'd like you to do, if you don't have a pen or pencil, uh, we have some, but Betty says we must give them back. They belong to somebody else. She snuck them from somewhere. What I'd like you to do, um, there are three little quizzes. I'd like you to take all three of them. And the first one is, can I survive in poverty? The second is, can I survive in middle class? And the third is, can I survive in wealth? And I want you to think about this as you personally would answer it. And then we're going to talk about it. <clears throat> what do you think about poverty? How many of you marked most of these? Do you mind? Now, those of you that marked some of them, were they because you experienced it yourself, or are you in a situation where you helped others? Others? Anybody want to comment about what they found interesting? Yes. way that um, someone in poverty might view the middle class things. Like I thought, I have several screens to keep someone away from me. That sounds ridiculous, but that's because it's not a cultural rule of the middle class to me. And somebody from poverty might think decorating your house for different um, yeah. holidays might seem ridiculous to people living in poverty. Why would people want to do that? Good, good point. Something else, anything on there that surprised you? how not to get your clothes stolen at a laundromat, you don't leave, you stay. Right. So it, some of these were just common sense issues that I assume everybody can just figure out. But you easily. know, it's funny. When I first read this the first time, that was the one that stumped me because I thought I never would have thought about having to worry about things being stolen. I just never would have thought about that being a problem. And then what I thought about it, I thought, well, sure. You know, if people need tennis shoes or they need blue jeans, I can see how that could happen. But that one really surprised me. One, another one that surprised me on there was um, the one about 
using a knife as scissors. Why do you think? Okay, what you, would you say about that one? Okay, because you did, because why? Um, well, it wasn't when, <laughs> microphone, it wasn't when I was younger, it was just something that I had to do when I was a road driver, is I didn't have scissors right, making, that I carried with me, so I had Making do to, with what you had. Yeah, I certainly right. had to be able to make do with what I had, and you have to um, think creatively with the tools that are available to you. Oh, you found a hard piece of surface, and you take my mine was a serrated blade, and you just sort of rock the knife back and forth all the way down the edge that you wanted. Well, my my reason for knowing that one was a different reason. My mother was left-handed, and sometimes she couldn't use the right-handed scissors, and so she would like to to wrap a gift. You know, she would fold the wrapping paper and use a knife uh, instead of you know scissors. And so I learned it from a different way, but. Um, you know, one of them, which I'll tell on a friend of mine who teaches at Walsh, I was invited to speak to his educational psychology class, and when he read these, the second one, he said, who, who buys bags? You know, he had no idea what a bag sale was. And so, and I thought, well, again, terminology. You know, we might not understand. You know, a bag sale is $2, everything you can load into a bag, you can walk away with. You know, in our, we're going to talk in a couple weeks about the resources in Stark County, we have wonderful, wonderful resources for those in need, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about those. But um, the one about, you know, knowing where soup kitchens are, knowing where rummage sales are, knowing where giveaway programs are, you know, that's what, how people of, of living in poverty sometimes have to survive, knowing how to access those places. But when you look at this overall list, what do you think to yourself? I don't want to be there. Do you guys want to be there? You know, what a, what a painful, difficult existence to have to worry about the things that are on that list. And they're not very joyful. They're not very positive. But when you look at middle class, which I'm assuming most of you consider yourself middle class, <coughs> upper middle class, so what would, you, what would you say about those? I can do them all. Uh, you can do them all. <laughs> and my, you felt, my wife can, I should say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you feel comfortable, don't you? And when you think about, oh, I can get a, I can get a library card. I know how to get my kids into, into um, uh, you know, Little League. Or uh, I can help my kids with homework. I can remember my parents because they were both educated. It wasn't um, if you're going to go to college, it's where you're going to go to college. I mean, that was just not part of the question. I mean, that we were expected to go to college. Uh, so those things are things that we probably feel very comfortable with. They're in my skin. I mean, they're exactly. part of who I am. Exactly. And things like even setting a table. Uh, I know when I was the principal, I can remember we gave an award to a group of students, and it didn't even occur to me that most of those students had never gone to a restaurant and ordered off a menu. They had been to fast food, and they had gone up to, the, you know, to, to order, but they never knew how to order off a menu. They didn't really know proper etiquette. And we take those things for granted. Uh, there was a, a, I had a, a person in one of my poverty classes several years ago. She was a counselor at um, Indian River. And she was saying that there was a, a young man who was in really big trouble because they felt that he was being um, obstinate for not making his bed. And he had gone through all these different uh, the hierarchy of punishment or whatever. And they kind of, as a last resort, they had him go in and talk to her. And she was kind of exasperated and said, why, why are you making such a big deal about this? Why didn't you just make your bed? And he started, you know, tears came to his eyes. He said, I've never slept in a bed. I don't know how to make a bed. And again, we, you know, we would take that for granted. Well, of course, everyone knows how to make a bed. If you've slept on a mattress with no sheet on it, no, you don't know how to make a bed. And it would be embarrassing to admit that. And so, so often we really take things for granted. <clears throat> but middle class is pretty comfortable, isn't it? We decorate for holidays, and you know, we know how to use the tools in our garage. We know about um, interest rates and mortgage and a lot of these things that, that we just take for granted. <clears throat> and moving on to wealth, what do you think about that? You want to take one of these and pass them around? Were some of those kind of shocking to you? Anybody mark all of them? A few of them? No? Oh. <laughs> did you feel
feel that there was a, you know, when you read the poverty in the middle class, I'm sure you probably realized there was a pretty big gap. And, and in the overall thought process, you know, like I said, poverty, that, that idea of survival and uh, a very uncomfortable way of life. And then middle class, pretty comfortable. But when, when you get, what it, I think there's a pretty big gap too between <coughs> middle class and wealth when you look at this list. Yes. <laughs> There's the mic. Yeah. I just say, who who wants to be bothered with all the extra stuff that comes with that? That the wealth. I mean. Yeah. And you know, sometimes I think we secretly think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to win the lottery? But yet, think of what goes along with the 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 wealth that would come along with something like that. And I think it's it's interesting. Um, Ruby Payne tells a story. Uh, one of the reasons that she felt um, that she was able to write this book was she herself grew up in middle class. She married a man who lived in pretty severe poverty. And then he became very, very successful. And they became very wealthy. And they lived in a very exclusive area in Chicago. And she was telling a story about getting into a taxi cab with someone who obviously was extremely wealthy. She didn't realize it really at the time until they started talking. And she kind of made a faux pas by saying, they were talking about something of interest, and she said, uh, well, why don't you give me your, um, your card or your name and your address, and I'll contact you. And she was so embarrassed when the lady gave her her information because as soon as she saw the, the address, you know, she knew that this woman was very, very, very wealthy. And <clears throat> she talked about this idea of, of people of, of great wealth, you know, have to protect themselves. And they have to have these screeners to keep them from being approached or being taken advantage of. And so I think there's some really interesting similarities, similarities between those of extreme wealth and those of extreme poverty. Wondering if someone, what, what do you want? Are you befriending me because of something I have rather than you know, being uh, really caring about you as a person? So very interesting things about the, these differences. Um, I passed, yes. Very good. Good comment. And we'll talk more about that. Yes. <clears throat> no one can ever hear me. I just wanted to say that one of the great privileges of my life was the years that I belonged to the Rotary Club. Mm -hmm. And I have been on two of the polio immunization days, journeys. And they gave me the opportunity to see people who have never had any advantages at all and how they live and how they think. But you haven't really seen poverty until you've seen the children of Varanasi mm -hmm. in India. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're, we're gonna have to wind down here pretty quickly, but I wanted to just share a couple things with you um, and I'll give you a little assignment for next week. But what I passed out just now is, is a chart that, and we're just going to touch on a couple of these things. And when you have time this week, if you would look over these and think about them, maybe pick out one that you might want to uh, share with us next week. Uh, but I think this is really, really interesting. Um, let's see if my next, no, let's see. I wanted to show you a specific slide, and I guess it's not there. Um, if you'll go down to the very bottom of the list where it says driving forces, and I mentioned this before, but this is really, really important to remember. People of poverty, the driving force in their life, number one is survival. Getting through the day, being sure they have enough money, be sure they have, uh, can provide for their family. Uh, and then uh, we already, already just touched on the entertainment. Uh, how I felt, and some of you chimed in that you also felt, how well, I don't understand why, why they would buy a TV before they would buy a choose for their children. Uh, but it has a lot to do with that. Living in that kind of, of survival mode has got to be very, very painful. So having an opportunity to escape that, uh, I can think any of us would want to do that. And of course the other one is relationships. Um, it was interesting, I did a, a talk four or five years ago at, at Mercy Hospital for some of the middle management people, and I remember the, the head of HR said to me, when she heard I was coming, she decided she would read Ruby's book, and she did. And she said, you know, I was so, 
I was just so shocked about some of the things that I've done that I'm going to change because of reading that book. And one instance she gave me, she said that uh, because she dealt with, and were people living, living in poverty, some of the people that worked um, in the, in the um, housekeeping and uh, maintenance, and she said they would often call me and say, um, I, you know, I have to take off because I want to go to the funeral of my ex-mother-in-law. And, you know, she, her response would be, you know, what don't you understand about ex? This is, you know, the policy says it has to be immediate family. And she would get kind of exasperated to think that they were trying to take advantage of the system. And after reading that and realizing the importance of relationships for people living in poverty, she said, I changed my whole attitude. When they would call, I would start out by saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. However, our policy is. And she said it just changed the whole demeanor of the people that she worked with. She said it was just such a simple little change, but she said I never had any idea that um, those relationships were so important, even if it was an ex-in-law, you know, that that was something I learned about those people that I was working with. <clears throat> You'll notice the driving force for middle class, which is probably no surprise, work and achievement. You know, we want to be um, self-sustaining. We want to be able to put some money in the bank. We want to be able to save for our children's colleges. We have uh, things that we want to do. We want promotions. We want to please our bosses so that, that we do well in our work. So those are kind of our, our driving forces. And then for wealth, it's financial, political, and social connections. And uh, just a real quickly, because we've got to end here, but um, a couple other things that I think are interesting. Look up at food. The key question in poverty is, do you have enough? It has to do with quantity. Do I have enough for my family? <clears throat> for middle class, it's quality. Your colleagues and friends are going to take you out to dinner. Uh, you get to pick a place. Are you going to pick a fast food restaurant or are you going to pick a nice, nice restaurant? You know, it has to do with the quality. And then for people of wealth, it has to do with the presentation. I remember there used to be a TV commercial on a couple years ago where this young couple goes into, I think it was a Japanese restaurant, and they had this very fancy little, you know, little tiny things on there with the little dribbled stuff on it. And they looked at each other like, that's not going to be enough to feed us. And then you see them at a little fast food, I mean, a little... Um, uh, quick stop kind of place getting food. And you know, the whole idea about the presentation is what's important for those of wealth. Um, clothing, same kind of thing, you know. Uh, so read through this and um, bring this back. Yes? Uh, I cheated. I went rapidly down through it. Okay. Acceptance are conditional in the middle class based on achievement. And finally, love and acceptance is conditional in the wealthy related to social standing and connections. So uh, it's kind of amazing here in a Christian setting that uh, love is conditional. Right. Well, and if you'll, you'll notice the family structure right up to above that, I think the love and the family structure, you know, the, um, at poverty, it tends to be matriarchal because there's a lot of times no father in the picture. For middle class, it's more patriarchal, more father's head of the household. But for wealth, it, who, has, who has, controls the money uh, is how those decisions are made. So I think that kind of goes a little bit hand in hand with that, that love um, idea. But I know our time is up. And thanks for being such a good audience. And we'll continue our discussion next week. Anybody have any questions or parting thoughts? OK. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Sure. I'm going to south. I'll miss oh, the next one. Okay. Oh, well, and I can. I